You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey everyone, my name is Natasha Bajma. I'm the director of the Converging Risk Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. Some of you may or may not know that CSR's early work at the nexus of climate change, nuclear energy, and security was the inaugural project of the Converging Risk Lab, and in fact, led to its founding several years ago. This year, we're very excited to launch a new related line of work that seeks to reinvigorate U.S. leadership on nuclear energy issues with a view toward improving nuclear safety, security, and nonproliferation. We're thrilled to bring to you our first interview with Mr. Dan Poneman, the former Deputy Secretary of Energy, in what we expect to be a series of podcast episodes over the next few years. Let's go to the interview. Welcome to On the Verge, everyone. Today, we're here with Dan Poneman, who serves on the Board of Directors for the Council on Strategic Risks. He is also President and Chief Executive Officer of Centris Energy Corp. He has a distinguished career with the U.S. government, serving from 2009 to 2014 as the Deputy Secretary of Energy and Chief Operating Officer of the U.S. Department of Energy. His responsibilities there span the full range of U.S. energy policies and programs from hydrocarbons, renewables, nuclear efficiency, all the way to cybersecurity, project management, national security, and international cooperation. Mr. Poneman has published widely on national security issues. His most recent book, Double Jeopardy, Combating Nuclear Terror and Climate Change, was released by the MIT Press in May 2019. I'm co-hosting this interview with my colleague, Andrea Rezanaiko. She is deputy to the CEO and deputy director of the Converging Risk Lab here at the Council on Strategic Risks. She has co-led the development and execution of CSR's Converging Risk Work since 2016, beginning with our inaugural project analyzing the nexus of climate change, nuclear trends, and security dynamics. Dan, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. So I heard a little secret from your staff about the title of your new book, Double Jeopardy, that it has a, well, not so secret double meaning. And I'm wondering if you could start off by sharing that story. Well, you caught me uh, flat-footed on that. Yes, well, in like the one month I had between uh, two jobs, my White House fellowship and joining NSC, I had the good fortune to uh, pass the audition to get on the TV show Jeopardy in the days of Alex Trebek. And uh, I always loved trivia from my youth. I used to watch Alex Fleming uh, hosting Jeopardy when I was a kid. And so, yeah, it was a pretty exciting moment for me, 1989, I think it was uh, the year. And uh, I won one. And then uh, because I'm, I'm better at trivia than math, I bet poorly on uh, Final Jeopardy. And I lost uh, the second time, even though I got the Final Jeopardy answer right. So, but it was a fun experience. Let's turn to some more serious topics. Um, we've been watching uh, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine over the past month or so, a few days after they first invaded 
we saw that Europe's dependence on Russia's oil and natural gas started to shape some of their early reactions and in particular to impose harsh sanctions on Russia and cut them off from SWIFT. So this acute awareness of this dependence has caused some countries like Germany to reconsider their views on nuclear energy. Um, and then in the latest twist, of course, Russia shut off natural gas to Poland and Bulgaria. And so we're wondering from your point of view, do you think that nuclear energy could reduce Europe's dependence on Russian oil and gas sometime in the near term? Well, it could certainly uh, do that. And uh, in the near term and, and quite significantly in the, in the long term. And I just have to say, stepping back, having watched these issues, when you talk about together oil, gas, nuclear, I'm reminded back in October 1973, the first oil crisis, and the United States at that time, the United States went from uh, roughly a quarter of its uh, oil being met by imported uh, product, uh, and that dependence went up to over 30%. It was considered a national crisis. And our dependence in nuclear space has been much greater than that to the point where actually today in the area of some areas of nuclear fuel, the United States is completely dependent on uh, foreign state-owned enterprises. But what happened was people lost track of the fact that uh, we're not just dealing with commodities, but that we're dealing with strategic assets. And there was a robust debate back when I was in college over whether we should think about energy merely as a commodity or as a strategic asset. And I think if anything has become clear, actually, time and again, between the Lithuanian situation in 1989 and now this one here today, is that it is fundamentally a strategic asset. And the fact of the matter is when it comes to power generation, then yes, absolutely, nuclear energy is the obvious alternative. It's the only carbon-free alternative that can be producing electrons at scale, rain or shine, night or day, windy or not windy. And um, uh, that's why you've seen Belgium, for example, uh, reversing its decision to, to shut their final reactors. That's why you've at least seen debate about whether in Germany to shut down those final three reactors, because the question presented is how are you going to keep people warm in the winter um, if you're challenged in your gas supplies? And if you're continuing to care, as I think we all care about climate change, how to make those substitutions without putting us on the wrong track in terms of preventing uh, global disaster in the climate space. Thanks, Dan. And then kind of going back to this, our current events. So over recent weeks, we've seen Russian operations against nuclear power plants catching the world's attention, both in terms of the integrity of Ukraine's power grid, but also in terms of nuclear safety and security. Um, this, this will be a two-parter. So how would you explain Russia's rationale behind the operations to target a working nuclear power station, as well as Chernobyl, from your perspective? And then alongside that, are there any implications for the future of nuclear energy? Well, uh, one of the things I learned in my many years in government is uh, not to try to speculate on the motives of people who I'm not. Right? So um, it, you know, candidly speaking, uh, does not make a lot of sense to me, right, in any situation, in fact, it makes no sense to, to attack a nuclear power plant, point one. Point two, you know, one thing we know about war is that it's chaotic. And so I honestly don't know if there was a strategic decision to do this or not. I don't know. Uh, but it, it doesn't make sense to do that. Uh, what it really highlights, and I think this is the long-term issue that you're trying to get at, Andrea, is the absolute critical importance of safety in all energy facilities, 
Uh, I'm sure we all remember the um, uh, Kuwait situation with the oil fires and the tremendous climate damage that was inflicted uh, at that time. Uh, but uh, the nuclear industry actually has a very, I think, deep, longstanding, built-in uh, safety and security culture well uh, entrenched in its DNA. I am so impressed by Director General Rafael Grossi, who's you know just been a great leader on this, making sure that the safeguards monitoring equipment is operational, making sure that the uh, ability to uplink transmissions is continuing uh, and uh, and keeping, frankly, the world's attention. He just met today with the head of the Ukrainian uh, nuclear regulator. So um, uh, the, the important thing about nuclear is always to have, uh, as with all energy assets, hardened assets. One thing, and I think this is where uh, the work that you all are doing is so important, is people have generally underappreciated the uh, resilience challenges that are presented by both man-made and um, natural phenomena. And we see it time and again, our grids are vulnerable and the more dependent we become on more complex uh, grids and interactions with the grids, all the things that bring us so many benefits in terms of smart metering uh, and uh, demand responsive grids and EVs uh, plugged in uh, to the grid and so forth. Every one of those is in a sense, a new angle of attack and so uh, nuclear is certainly a very salient one, but it should be a signal to us in every case that we have to be keenly tuned in to the cyber and physical vulnerability of these assets. And where we don't have an organization like the International Atomic Energy Agency to sort of hold us all accountable and help present to the world standards and then to enforce and monitor those standards, we really need to think hard about whether we should be doing more in that uh, respect, not only with respect to nuclear, but really with respect to all energy assets. Yeah, what you said um, about resilience hit home. Um, I suffered through the uh, Texas freeze last year, where the grid was shut down for about a week. Um, and we didn't have power for six days, and it was 17 degrees out, we do not have insulated homes. So um, definitely something we need to think about, um, not just globally, but also nationally. As you know, Russia is a leading supplier of fuel for nuclear power plants around the world, which highlights yet another potential source of dependence for any country that produces nuclear power. Do you see any chance for companies in the United States to get back into the uranium enrichment business? And if not, what can we do to reduce these dependencies? Well, the market has evolved in a sort of, candidly speaking, haphazard ma manner, precisely because, candidly speaking, people have not been focused on energy security as an intrinsic value. And just a slight footnote, I couldn't help resisting, uh, and I'm glad you you hadn't suffered more because many people did in that horrible Texas freeze out. Uh, but that's a classic case. That's a classic case of not building extra capacity, not building resilience into the system. And then one fine morning or not so fine morning, you wake up to find, holy smokes, I'm in big trouble. It happened in 2014 in the upper Midwest with a polar vortex. I thought you were going to refer to Hurricane Harvey, right? And uh, the great thing about nuclear energy is it's, it's always on. And when, when coal uh, uh, piles freeze and gas lines freeze, they can keep running. Now, with respect to the market, uh, Russia uh, has a huge amount of installed capacity. And in fact, 
if you look in 1985, the United States had about 27 million, what we call separate of work units. That's the unit of account and enrichment of production capacity. Uh, and uh, we now have zero indigenous production capacity that's of US technology. There's a, a European owned plant that is in the United States, whereas the Russian now actually has just the amount that we used to have, 27 million separate work units or SWU. That accounts for like 46% of the world's installed capacity and over a third of the market share. So um, uh, there uh, is a discontinuity uh, there. And the market responds to signals, right? So when uh, Fukushima occurred, uh, 54 Japanese reactors shut down immediately, eight German reactors shut down immediately, followed by other German reactors which su shut down subsequently. And in the face of a massive decline in demand from those uh, shutdowns, you had new capacity built in Mexico. And in the presence of massive supply increase and massive de demand decrease, you had a massive collapse. So the price of separate work fell from like $150 per separate work unit down at one point in 2018 to as low as like $35. So, but the market response to signals, we've seen uh, kind of, it's, it's stunning only in the scale, but not in light of the uh, current circumstances. Uh, SWOO prices have just skyrocketed. So I do think there is an opportunity uh, for producers to get in. And because utilities are now more focused than they had been before the Ukrainian situation on energy security and the need, not just for more supply, but for more suppliers to have that kind of strong market uh, structure. The market is needing of multiple sources of supply. It's always a bad thing structurally to have a single point of failure. And if you talk to US utilities, you will hear them say, we want to see a competitive market. So I think the signals are now in place. And now what you need to see is, is some level of commitment uh, to translate those um, uh, sentiments into, you know, frankly, contracts and commitments for long-term offtake, because that's what it's going to take to invest in new capacity getting built. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I, I sit here in South Texas, and uh, I was not aware when I moved here that uh, we have some of the largest uranium deposits in the United States. And there are, I think, about eight to 10 uranium mines that are standing ready to enter operation should the, the prices um, allow that to be economically viable. So hopefully we've seen the signals and we'll start to see increased supply because as, as you point out, a monopoly is not good for, for anyone. That's right. And uh, the, the whole industry is actually integrated. And the interesting thing, Natasha, is that the United States government actually has its own requirements for enriched uranium. Uh, they need it, uh, first of all, because our nuclear deterrent relies on supply, continuing supply of tritium. And uh, that, that tritium, uh, one way to, to get it is with uh, uranium, but by US law, that has to be domestically sourced uranium and it has to be domestically converted into a gas and it has to be domestically enriched. And so the government can actually play a very important and useful role because of their own inexorable needs for enriched uranium, and this is a classic role for government, to actually stimulate the market. Because to the extent, look, every single enrichment plant that has ever been built on the face of the planet was bought and so was bought by a government and paid for by a government. The United States is the only country that privatized this activity. 
But uh, right now you have uh, a lot of discussion going on about the convergence of these national security and energy resilience issues, along with the market structure and, and clean energy and climate change issues. It's actually right now a very uh, fertile discussion. And I think there's been, uh, frankly, making up a bit for lost time, because as I said, there was a sort of easy complacency that developed in people's mentalities over the last several years. One cannot help but remember the old Aesop's fable of the grasshopper and the ant. And uh, I think we've been a little bit too much uh, like grasshopper singing, uh, you know, without paying attention to what was coming wintertime. And, and, and now we are. So pulling on this thread that, that you've mentioned in terms of, of the climate crisis and, and the United States' role in nuclear energy development, the, U, the United States needs to prepare for countries ramping up nuclear energy development as a means of addressing the climate crisis. Um, but they may, considering current events, they may pivot away from Russia as their vendor of choice. And many U.S. officials have long been concerned that uh, Russia leading the nuclear export market poses strategic and economic disadvantages to the United States um, and reduces U.S. opportunities for strengthening norms of safety, of security, and uh, nonproliferation. How do we invigorate the U.S.'s role as, as a global nuclear energy supplier? Well, Andre, it's, it's a great question. I think it's actually happening. I think the key fundamental piece of this is a growing and deepening understanding that there is no way to reach net zero without a significant expansion of nuclear. 2X, some people say 3X of what we have today. And if you think that that is the case, then safety, security, and nonproliferation have got to be paramount because you're gonna be talking about a lot more reactors in a lot more places. And I would just say, with, uh, without trying to sound jingoistic, US safety, security, and nonproliferation standards are second to none. And I'll also say that globally, the way we assure that we have robust and rigorous safety, security, and nonproliferation standards is by intense peer uh, review and interaction. And to have the United States selling out there is critical to that process. As Secretary, former Secretary uh, Moniz has often said, "No sales, no influence." I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm summarizing a little bit, but that's 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 the point. The United States used to have a very robust export sector, but I would say, based on that underlying uh, premise, that people now I think increasingly accept of the critical role nuclear plays in uh, in the climate change effort, uh, now you have, I think it's fair to say, truly a whole of government approach uh, in the United States. And uh, we have not always, frankly, been effective at going toe to toe in the global competitive market. Uh, number one, export credit uh, agencies are critically important. You now have both in the United States, the Exim Bank and the Development Finance Corporation, formerly known as OPIC. Uh, overseas Private Investment Corporation. Uh, you have the U.S. Department of Commerce leading trade missions. 
Uh, you have the industry getting together and meeting with uh, other industrial players in, in, in other countries. So I think we're actually positioning ourselves better and candidly speaking, to the extent that we can uh, reinvigorate our fuel industry, it's going to be a very important element of that. Another very important element of that is the real excitement and ferment around the whole question of advanced nuclear energy te technologies. Uh, many of these are the so-called small modular reactors or SMRs, faster, better, smaller, cheaper, deployable. They, the way it's been described, which I like describing is we're moving from building airports to building airplanes. In other words, less of the individual stick built bespoke and then often costly uh, models of yesteryear into uh, factory built repeated uh, kind of uh, machines and, and, and parts and, and units that can be then truck loaded and, and shipped to different places that have very small footprints that can be uh, built underground in many cases. Uh, that can reinforce the use of renewables on the grid. There's just a lot of uh, excitement. And I think this so-called fourth generation of advanced nuclear is a very attractive thing in countries around the world, many of whom don't even have the size of grid that would easily support those classic you know, 1,000 megawatt units uh, that uh, have become you know, so challenging to finance and Build. So, so I think those that those combination of things are very attractive. And when you take the combination of the exciting new U.S. technologies for advanced nuclear reactors, and you uh, combine that with a reinvigorated fuel se sector, with the great respect that our Nuclear Regulatory Commission enjoys globally as kind of a, a certificate of, of, of safety and good housekeeping seal of approval. Uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic that uh, the future is going to be bright for the U.S. In, in getting back into this market. And I think when we do, I think that it will have enhancements not only for um, our climate and uh, economic and energy agendas, but also to your question, Andrea, to the uh, safety, security and nonproliferation objectives, which we so, so strongly espouse. Thanks for that. So. We've talked about um, dependency on Russia and oil, getting away from that, turning to nuclear energy, um, turning to nuclear energy as a way to respond to climate change. At CSR, of course, we like to look at converging risks, the different intersections between all different types of security risks, including nuclear, um, climate, um, and in all related issues. I'm curious, um, how do you see these intersections between climate change and nuclear energy? And then how would you, um, you know, see us paying more attention to infrastructure issues? Uh, climate change, of course, here on the coast with the ocean uh, rising, um, all of our infrastructure faces uh, risks from hurricanes, uh, rising ocean levels. So how do these issues all come together in your mind? Well, candidly speaking, uh, this is what I think is so great about CSR, because that's the one place where I see all of these threads of th thought being thought of in an integrated system-wide uh, fashion, including the you know, very important work the, that this, uh, the CSR does in the arms control space and so forth. They're all intimately interconnected. So uh, you were nice enough to mention my book. The book posits two existential threats facing humanity. One is catastrophic climate change and one is nuclear annihilation. So if to take my comments of a few minutes ago, if you accept the premise, and I do, that we will fail utterly in potentially 
catastrophic climate change being prevented without a significant new deployment of nuclear, you have to worry about non-proliferation and arms control, right? And and therefore, you know, it, it again, I think speaks to the importance of, of U.S. leadership, the importance of the of uh, export control standards that, that, that we can muster. Uh, there's an idea that sec former Secretary Moniz and I advanced way back in 2004 about providing for an assured nuclear fuel services initiative. Since many countries want nuclear electricity for climate change reasons and they don't want bombs, and it makes no sense economically to build a whole uh, infrastructure for nuclear fuel, if you don't want bombs because it's much cheaper to buy it from an established supplier, we can do that. So if we are thoughtful about bringing these discussions into the same framework and talking about non-proliferation and talking about national security at the same time you talk about the design of the reactors and the design of the fuel cycle to support the reactors, there's a whole robust discussion around the uh, use of plutonium in this context. So that's one whole set. But the other set, you are, I, I think you already mentioned, but it's really important to keep in mind, and that's how all of these things interact in a system-wide uh, setting in the grid. So, you know, if you're talking about, for example, the expanded deployment of renewables and intermittent sources of energy, and, and I think we must do that, we must max out on every non-carbon source, you're talking about big transmission. Well, when you're talking about big transmission, there are vulnerabilities that, that, that are injected into the system there too. And so we have to think about, uh, one thing I uh, think is also worth looking at in this context is test bedding things. So for example, I was part of a national commission uh, on grid resilience that was uh, co-chaired by former general Wes Clark. And we talked about the utility of uh, setting up microgrids that could become two things. Number one, test beds for resilient technologies, which is a good thing to have. Right. And and among those, by the way, this would be a very good place to try not only small modular reactors, but even smaller so-called micro reactors. But the other thing is, in addition to being a test bed, they're actually virtuous in themselves, because to the extent you have a bunch of um, distributed microgrids, then, you know, God forbid somebody should do some kind of system wide uh, attack then those uh, places, and, and this would typically start, with, for example, with military bases or places of high national security priority, would be insulated against that kind of uh, uh, attack against our resilience. And when you think about uh, things like the 2003 major blackout that started with a tree sagging on a line in Cleveland, uh, and, and you know tens of millions of people being affected, and then you sort of multiply that by what could happen if there's actually a malicious actor out there or an electromagnetic pulse out there, then some of these ideas about developing microgrids uh, and so forth uh, become that much more attractive. That's really fascinating. So I actually was living in New York City in 2003 during that power outage and was working at the United Nations on the 31st floor and I had to walk down all 31 floors and I didn't quite realize even though I was young at the time, what a toll that would take on my legs. Um, I also had to walk home, but that was a, a lot easier than down the stairs. Um, so all of this kind of brings me to kind of a, a final question that's been on my mind for a while. Um, when I first started my career about 20 years ago, I was I started out on energy security and we were talking then about the prospect for a nuclear renaissance in the United States. And you mentioned one of my favorite topics, these small modular reactors and the prospect for decentralization of our grid as a way to um, increase our resilience. Do you see Americans being willing to accept 
the new types of nuclear reactors in their backyard? I do. I do. Uh, the first time around, and I, I was working on these issues then too, I always kind of felt it was bad luck to talk about a renaissance, and I still do, because it just seemed a little bit, uh, uh, whatever, uh, over-optimistic, and I always worry about things like that, just in the kind of uh, rhetoric space. But but the, the substance uh, is, I think, valid. And look, um, I think when you look at popular attitudes toward nuclear energy, I think they are evolving. I think uh, people are realizing that there is, in fact, no realistic path to net zero without a lot of nuclear. And I think there are certainly issues and continuing concerns about nuclear, but in my judgment, they pale in comparison to what can happen to the whole planet as you know, islands submerge, you're living in a coastal area yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And this is not just me talking, take the most recent case in point, you had four communities in Wyoming vigorously competing to host the small modular reactor that TerraPower, the company founded by Bill Gates, uh, has been uh, awarded to build with the support of the United States Department of Energy. I think you're gonna find that increasingly uh, is the case. Uh, these new advanced technologies, they uh, are really attractive. They have intrinsic safety, non-proliferation uh, benefits. They are fuels that are like impossible to melt down, to melt down and that, that uh, uh, and there are reactors that when un unlike past on <laughs> sad, and even tragic situations like Chernobyl, when the heating up of a reactor leads to the continued overheating by virtue of uh, the, the uh, architecture of the reactor, these new reactors have passive designs that when they overheat, they automatically shut down passively with no intervention. So there's lots of things that uh, intrinsically make them safer and therefore uh, public acceptance is higher. And that combination of understanding the role of nuclear in terms of building a clean energy future and also the advances in nuclear, just think of any other technology and you continually improve the, the safety. And when you think, and look, no one wants to see any accidents everywhere. Of course, people die every year and uh, unfortunately large numbers from coal, from you know, there've been natural gas line explosions, all kinds of things. And in Bill Gates' latest book, he's got this line, you know, imagine, uh, you know, it's I'm in the 1960s and you had 40,000 people die from car accidents. 40,000 people die from car accidents, which is like some vast multiple of those who are ever injured from, from nuclear energy. We never said, well, let's stop driving. We said, let's, let's invent seatbelts, let's invent airbags, you know, let's do, you know, side mirrors instead of just the center mirror. We, we improve the safety, right? <clears throat> and so we have to be in a journey of continuous improvement. But I, I, I do think that the public acceptance uh, is growing already. I think you've seen it in Europe. I think you see it today in Japan, even. And uh, I, I do feel like this is the front edge of a really exciting phase. Uh, and uh, I'm, like the rest of the world, shocked and, and uh, horrified at the tragedy that's uh, unfolding in, in Ukraine. But uh, one of the things that has happened is people have now begun to focus on this not only in climate terms, but to the uh, extent that uh, CSR is looking at these issues from a resilience standpoint, I think these are all converging trends. And I think it promises that out of the ashes of this disaster, we're gonna at least have a smarter, intelligent, thoughtful, integrated policy that allows us to build resilient infrastructure in which uh, clean energy forms, be it, uh, nuclear 
for renewables, solar, wind, geothermal. Uh, I think we have to continue to think very seriously and invest significantly in carbon capture and utilization because it's a fact of life that there's a lot of continued use of fossil fuels and that will continue for many decades. And uh, all of these things, we're gonna need every jot and tittle of our ability to kill carbon if we have a prayer of saving the planet. Nuclear is not the only part of this, obviously, but it's a very important part of it. And I think we're now set up uh, to have the kind of discussion coming out of the COP process where people are gonna be making smart investments and policy decisions that are gonna enable us to get there. Because frankly, you know, to paraphrase that um, uh, Apollo 13 uh, line, uh, failure is not an option. Uh, there's nothing literally less than the fate of the planet that hangs in the balance. So we really have to get this right. Well, thank you so much for, I think, uh, what has been an extremely fascinating discussion. Thanks for coming on the show and for your support for CSR. Well, thank you for having me and, uh, and good luck to you and to Andrea. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.